Good afternoon, uh, Richard Craig. Many thanks for joining us for our third podcast, which we're recording in the courtroom here in Liverpool. Um, just by way of introduction, Richard is a paediatric anaesthetist here at Alderhey. He is airway lead and course director for the Alderhey Paediatric Difficult Airway course, and he's just uh, been teaching on the workshops for the last six hours, so we're very grateful that he's joined us Thanks. for this podcast interview. Uh, like me, we both share an interest in craniofacial uh, surgery, and um, you may hear a little twinge of South African in Richard's accent. <laughs> Scouse African. <yeah. laughs> Scouse African. Okay. Richard, if I can start by asking what sparked your interest in, in nasal high-flow oxygen and its use in children? Thanks, Summit. So uh, over the last year or so, we've been exploring the use of nasal high-flow oxygen in anaesthetized children. Uh, predominantly, we've been using it in spontaneously breathing children and uh, in two settings, really. One is children with an anticipated difficult airway where we were electing to perform an asleep fiber optic intubation. And the other scenario, um, more common in terms of numbers, it was for airway endoscopy, that is for microlaryngotracheobronchoscopy performed by an ENT surgeon. So these would be children on an ENT list having a, a, an airway endoscopy, uh, either diagnostic or therapeutic. Um, and we were interested in this following the publications on uh, the use of nasal high-flow oxygen uh, for Thrive. So that's for... Uh, Transnasal Humidified uh, Rapid Insufflation Ventilatory Exchange. And the first publication uh, describing Thrive uh, was in 2015 in Anesthesia, and that was by Patel and Narai. And uh, they reported a series of adult patients who had airway pathology and in whom they had applied nasal high-flow oxygen uh, uh, after induction of anaesthesia, and uh, they'd rendered them apneic, giving them muscle relaxant. Uh, and they showed that not only could they achieve uh, apneic oxygenation, but also that the rate of rise of CO2 seemed to be remarkably low, uh, certainly lower than other studies on apneic oxygenation. Um, so their median apnea time in that study was 14 minutes, uh, but it did extend uh, up to 65 minutes, um, and uh, none of the patients desaturated to less than 90%, although a couple were probably heading that way after about five or seven minutes, and uh, nevertheless they were able to uh, institute jet ventilation, having already got the patients into suspension laryngoscopy. And, and the rate of rise of CO2 surprisingly low, so even at its highest, it was only 15.3 kilopascals. And using the data that they had accumulated, they described a rate of rise of CO2 of 0.15 kilopascals per minute, which is a lot less than other studies on classic apneic oxygenation had described, which really had described um, uh, CO2 rising at a rate of about 0.35 to 0.45 kilopascals per minute. Um, so this was interesting. This was essentially something new um, and seemed that uh, what they were describing was a combination of um, some sort of ventilation, ventilatory exchange through a, a flushing effect as well as CPAP delivered via this high-flow nasal oxygen as well as the apneic oxygenation. Um, this was then followed up by uh, further studies on Thrive. So in 2017 in the BJA, there was a study by Gustafsson and uh, his colleagues from Sweden, and they had placed an arterial line in um, 
And their patients and essentially also administered Thrive, uh, now measuring PaCO2. They also measured transcutaneous CO2. And at the end of the period of apnea, uh, on recommencing manual ventilation, but before the patients resumed spontaneous ventilation, uh, they measured entitled CO2. Um, they also demonstrated that you could achieve outstanding apneic oxygenation uh, and that the rate of rise of CO2 is perhaps less than classic apneic oxygenation but not quite as low as uh, had initially been reported using end tidal CO2. So the rate of rise uh, using measured PaCO2 was a bit higher. That was about 0.24 kilopascals per minute in that study. And interestingly enough, when measuring entidal CO2, albeit with a face mask and manual ventilation at the end of the period of apnea, they found quite a large gradient between the PaCO2 and the entidal CO2. Re- really, it was quite high. It was more than 3 kilopascals um, uh, at the end of the procedure. Uh, and so they suggested that um, capnography underestimates the accumulation of CO2 and that this gradient increases over time. Uh, They did demonstrate, and this was of interest to us, that transcutaneous CO2 does follow the PaCO2 really very, very closely. Um, So you can use transcutaneous CO2 as a fairly good measure uh, of PaCO2. They seemed almost uh, equivalent. And and then there were a couple of studies involving children. Uh, These were both from uh, Australia, from Brisbane, from Lady Salenta, this is Susan Humphreys and her team. Uh, they studied Thrive in children and they looked to see whether they could increase the apnea time uh, in children and they found that they could successfully do that and safely do that using Thrive. Uh, and then finally they, they reported a, a series where they hadn't applied Thrive but they had used nasal high flow oxygen uh, during uh, either difficult airway management or the airway endoscopies, uh, so dynamic airway assessment performed by an ENT surgeon. Um, and with all of that background, we thought we would like to give this a go. And so tell us, we have. How, how have you, okay, just tell us how you've gone about introducing it and what you've learned yourselves by yeah. introducing this system. So we started conducting a, a formal service evaluation project. So having discussed this uh, with a, a peer review group within our department, as well as the uh, uh, audit department in our hospital, uh, this was thought to be an incremental change. We were already using total intravenous anesthesia for airway endoscopy. We are already obviously administering oxygen for airway endoscopies and prior to using nasal high flow oxygen, this had typically been through placing a nasopharyngeal airway uh, and that nasopharyngeal airway usually simply an uncuffed endotracheal tube placed as a nasopharyngeal airway. So using nasal high-flow oxygen was deemed to be uh, an incremental change and one that we could pursue as a service evaluation project. So we've been gathering data on that uh, for about the last six months uh, and uh, we managed to get hold of a transcutaneous CO2 monitor from radiometer and we've been measuring transcutaneous CO2 in these patients as well as gathering data on Uh, episodes where rescue oxygenation uh, might be required and uh, that is episodes where patients should they desaturate rapidly requiring interruption of the surgical procedure, bag mask ventilation or intubation. We looked at incidents of coughing, laryngospasm, apnea Mm. uh, as well as recovery room events. And so we've got uh, quite a, a, a number of cases under our belt now and so out of the first 20 cases that we've done Uh, we found, well, perhaps first I should give you some data to compare to. So the the study on nasal high-flow oxygen in spontaneously breathing children uh, from Australia, uh, that 
reported out of 20 patients one episode where risk of oxygenation was required and they measured the lowest recorded saturation uh, for the, those patients and the average lowest recorded saturation is 96%. Uh, in our first 20 patients we've had two patients that required rescue oxygenation, uh, in other words the procedure had to be interrupted. Um, one was a child with uh, quite severe laryngeal papillomata that were pretty much occluding the Sorry, Richard, was yeah. this, they're all ENT cases? These 20 were all ENT yeah. cases, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and the other was a child who was an ex-prem, uh, had some subglottic cysts that were being resected, had had numerous ITU admissions and who developed laryngospasm when an adrenaline-soaked patty was applied to uh, the cyst. Um, so we've had two patients that required rescue oxygenation, um, but the others have progressed fairly smoothly. Um, we have found that the, trans the transcutaneous CO2 measurements in these patients have all been between 6 and 10.8 kilopascals. We found that there's no relationship between the duration of the procedure and the transcutaneous CO2 readings. That's not surprising. The patients are breathing spontaneously, so mm. it's really about the uh, uh, you know, how, how, how they're ventilating, not about the duration of the, 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 the surgery. Um, so potential advantages that you've yeah. found? So the main thing that we like about it is it does seem to give you a very stable platform for performing uh, M endoscopy, and that includes patients who need fiber-optic intubation. So we have uh, in, uh, a number of patients where we've done a sleep fiber-optic intubation using this technique. So you can establish the patient on total intravenous anesthesia, mm. breathing spontaneously with high-flow nasal oxygen being administered. With opioid or are you just yeah, what with, are you running? with opioid. So we're tending to run uh, propofol infusion as well as a remifentanyl infusion. Yeah. Uh, and the propofol, for the purposes of this service evaluation project and for the ENT patients, we were running this as a target-controlled infusion using the PEDFUSER model. Yeah. And we were running that at anything between about 3 and 5 mics per mil as the target concentration. That was not set, that's simply as we have found it to be. So we're titrating to uh, whatever the patient needs to tolerate uh, the, the intervention to, to uh, maintain spontaneous ventilation and tolerate the endoscopy. And the remifentanil, we're running that simply as mics per kilogram per minute uh, in infusion. And the infusion rates are anything between 0 0.05 and 0.1 mic per kilogram per minute. And the apparatus in the nose is yeah. small enough to not impair the surgeon's mm. access to the airway yeah. with his bronchoscopy. So one of the great advantages, I think, of this technique for airway endoscopy uh, over you know, placing a nasopharyngeal airway is that you do not get any adenoidal bleeding. So it's not that uncommon that when you pass a nasopharyngeal airway in a child on an ENT list, they've got large adenoids and you, you get a bit of adenoid bleeding even with the greatest care. And then you have a surgical field that's not hugely contaminated, but a little contaminated with blood. Now, there's just none of that with this technique. Also, I do think you've probably got uh, greater latitude to manipulate your, your total intravenous anesthesia. So, for instance, one of the things we have changed since adopting this is when and how we spray the cords with topical local anesthesia. So, the high-flow nasal oxygen is delivered using the OptiFlow system, which is by uh, Fisher and Paykel. Uh, that involves a, a humidifier, that's a heated plate humidifier, uh, as well as a, a a circuit which has got a heated wire in it to avoid condensation, and then the nasal cannula. This is attached to a flow meter. The flow meter is either up to 30 litres per minute if you're using paediatric circuits, or the adult circuits take you up to flows of 70 litres a minute. 
and um, this has to be plugged in because it's you know, electrically powered humidifier and it needs piped gas supply. Um, so the uh, either oxygen and air for our OptiFlow system, the pediatric system, although the Thrive system that as as is now being um, marketed by Fisher and Paykel is pure oxygen, uh, and that is something to consider actually, which we'll come to perhaps towards the end. Uh, so we set that up in theatre, and so what we've adjusted in terms of the timing of spraying the cords is we will now establish the patient on TV, take them into the operating room from the anaesthetic room, get them onto the operating table, get them onto the high flow nasal, and when they're nice and settled and you've done the check in then spray the cords and that seems to be very successful in terms of having them tolerate uh, both spraying the cords, any coughing, they tend not to desaturate. Uh, you can also, I find, um, you can boost your TIVA, you can give a bolus of propofol at that point which is very well tolerated on the high flow nasal because clearly uh, you know, a short period of apnea is not troublesome but you do want the patient breathing for a dynamic airway assessment so you know, as with uh, any anyway, endoscopy, you're titrating your TIVA carefully and constantly to achieve the desired endpoint of a spontaneously breathing patient who's also tolerating the procedure. Um, Do you have any experience of using this technique in a child that has uh, foreign body in the? We do. So in one of our cases was indeed, in fact, the, the longest case, which lasted 72 minutes, was a foreign body in the bronchus, very well tolerated, um, and that involved a combined approach by the ENT and the respiratory physician. So this foreign body was quite friable, it fragmented, uh, so it required both um, rigid bronchoscopy as well as flexible bronchoscopy. All of this was done uh, by you know, a team that included the ENT surgeon and, and respiratory physicians, and it was very very, very well tolerated, uh, and the OptiFlow ran throughout the whole procedure. So actually even the flexible bronchoscopy was done through the suspension laryngoscope, and um, yeah, re- really smooth. So, Great. Yeah. Okay, just uh, coming to a close, uh, do you have any plans for future research on this topic? Yeah, so what we'd like to do next is having gathered some data on introducing this technique and I suppose refining our technique within the department, we'd now like to compare this to other techniques for airway endoscopy, for microlaryngotracheal bronchoscopy, so specifically comparing it to using a volatile and a nasopharyngeal airway. Um, you, you cannot use a volatile and nasal high-flow oxygen. Uh, it, it wouldn't work. You wouldn't be able to administer the, the, the sevoflurane. But we could see the more traditional technique in our department uh, might have involved sevoflurane mm-hmm. and a nasopharyngeal airway. And it would be nice to compare the two techniques um, more formally. So we would plan to do a, a you know, formal comparison, essentially, a, a, com, a controlled trial comparing yeah. the two. Yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing that. Richard, thanks thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's great. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.